This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steveroseph.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to Pros and Concepts. Welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about the big five. I'm not going to keep this up this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? Yeah, so we're going to be talking about the big five personality traits. Steve, do you know what that is? Tell me what you know. Yeah, the old five-factor model. It's generally considered the best personality test available. Arguable because there's the Hexaco, which is a development on it. But generally speaking, it's kind of the go-to personality tests in psychological research. Yes. And you were asking me yesterday what my thoughts were on why this is better than the Myers-Briggs type indicator, MBTI. Yeah, because if you haven't heard of the Big Five or the five-factor model personality test, you may have heard of Myers-Briggs. It's everywhere. It's these four letters where you classify a certain combination of those letters and then you get like one box that describes you or something like that. And it seems to be pretty common. I don't come across in my day to day. You do though. You see people talking about Myers-Briggs personality types. It's basically the new more science-y horoscopes on dating profiles. People will put their MBTI. So if you're not familiar with it by that label, it's ENFP or INTJ, stuff like that. It's always four letters. There's only 16 types, which is part of the reason why I think it's deeply flawed. It's basically, if you know true colors, that one's ridiculously simplified. That one is also pseudoscience. I don't know why I'm going to that. The true colors is four colors for personalities. The MBTI has 16 in total, I believe. So it's marginally better, but it's still basically horoscopes because there's only 16 kinds of people, right? Yeah, but the colors one's even more ridiculous because it's only four types of people in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's You dumb. fit only in one of four boxes. And these are mostly used in the workplace, I find. Yeah, they're also used there. So my understanding, it's been a while since I looked at that because I was more looking at the big five and less at <laughs> Myers-Briggs. Did you dive into any of why that's garbage? Why Myers-Briggs is garbage? Well, I mean, it certainly could be fun like horoscopes can provoke conversation. There's some level, I guess, of horror effect there, which is like you read into it. Like all of the boxes are general enough where you can like read yourself into most of the categories. And so it's almost like, you know, open a fortune cookie and you're like, that's so me. Or you read a horoscope and you say, that's so me. There's a bit of that horror effect happening with Myers-Briggs because all of them are positive and we like to associate ourselves with positive traits. And so that's kind of a benefit of it is that it provokes conversation. The drawback is obviously it's not founded in actual science. I think it was like the 40s or something. Didn't have formal psychological training. It's loosely based on kind of union concepts. There was not a whole lot of research backing it. It's just kind of very theoretical. Yeah. There's a problem with replicability. You can do it multiple times and get different results in a sense apparently the biggest problem and this is the most obvious one is that it classifies you into this like box of 16 different types of people in the world and it's a dichotomy rather than a gradient and that's the biggest thing with these other models like five factor is that instead of like yes you are this and no, you're not that like a dichotomy. You're either an introvert or an extrovert in Myers-Briggs. There's no kind of both. There's no you nuance. Can't, there's, there's no in between. can't be both. Yeah. yeah, there's no box for both. But in five-factor, it's a gradient. So you kind of rate on a scale of like how much introverted are you versus extroverted and you fall somewhere on a spectrum. And so that's way more useful. 
Yeah. So the MBTI, as I understand it, it was made by two people. I think one of them was like the daughter of a psychologist. I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was two women that made it. And they were quite capitalistic. They patented it and they went around and promoted it everywhere and were aggressively trying to sell it as a service, which is why it became more popular from my understanding, because they had the profit motive behind it. They kept pushing and pushing and pushing to get this thing everywhere. Kind of like True Colors. They're both patented things that you have to get like certification, I think, to actually run. I mean, I guess you still do for the big five to be like a licensed psychologist to, to sort it out. But I don't think it's patentable and it's just like a model, a scientific model. So anybody can basically use it the big five, but not everybody can use the Myers-Briggs, which actually makes it so people have an incentive to go out there and sell it. Yeah. Apparently it makes like $20 million a year. It's very profitable. Yeah. It's, it's horseshit. It's garbage. I've seen people on anti-work and other work separatists talking about how it was something they had to answer their type indicator, their Myers-Briggs to see whether they're fit for the job. But it's like, there's no validity in that. Even the big five, which is actually scientifically backed, we'll get into that in a second, but the big five is more backed by science. And even that has limited application and predictability. To me, I kind of see it like a meta score that like, it's kind of your odds towards doing certain behaviors, but it's still not going to guarantee predictability. To give Myers-Briggs some benefit, I remember doing it in high school and I got something like I... NFP. But I was pretty close to, I was right in the middle between E and I. I was pretty close, but I'm just going to lean it onto the I because I think that's more accurate. So INFP, and I looked up the boxes the other day and the category for that was the healer. And it was like most likely to be like a counselor or psychologist. And I'm thinking So like, wait, you're giving you're giving it credit for being like a horoscope <laughs> and, and giving you a label that happened to be right? Because I'm sure we could find at least two or three that would perfectly fit what you're currently doing. Right. Like the healer is super broad. No, it actually literally said in the box, most likely to be a counselor. <laughs> It's okay. crazy. Well, that's funny. It is funny. But you know what? I just wanted to kind of throw the head out there, but don't base your job off of it. Don't base anything off of it other than just a little bit of fun. A little bit of fun. Yeah. yeah. Why not? I don't personally have a qualm with these things because as I see it today, we have a problem of authority and people being willing to just do their own research when they have no qualifications. And that can lead them astray down to like the establishment is lying to you, which is like the first step you need to become pulled into a cult or pulled into the alt-right or whatever. So I feel like these things can be kind of playing with fire. But anyway, that's that's basically all I have to say about the Myers-Briggs. It's trash. Don't use it. And here's a better thing. Yeah. If you want to have a little fun, do the better thing. Why not? Yeah, because this is going to actually be a bit more accurate, though you're not going to have a box. It's going to be a sliding scale from zero to 100, I believe, for each of these traits. And it's going to be a standard distribution for each of them. Yes, not as exciting as a box. Right. So to find that, a standard distribution is one where most people are going to land around the 50th percentile right in the middle. It's going to be a bell curve in representation. So it goes from very low at the bottom end, reaches its peak at 50, and then goes back down gradually by 100. So that's going to be all of these. Very few people are going to be 100 on any of these factors or zero. Most of us are going to land between probably 35 and 65. But yeah, you can assess yourself to some loose degree. It's not that hard. And to me, I think it can be useful for thinking about designing characters or thinking about the type of person you want to hire. It's again going to be something that is broad and not super predictive, but we'll get into it. All right. You ready? Yeah. Okay. So I'm not going to go into the history of this too much because it's long and storied. In short, a ton of research is backing it, apparently. Yeah, there's a lot of research backing it. There's been a lot of different people that have come to similar criteria, and they end up basically correlating with these five. They've tried to increase it to six, like Hexaco. We'll get to that in a bit, but to finish that point, people have tried to figure out whether there's four traits or six traits or seven or any number, but they typically seem to land roughly around five. And then they kind of broke them down into two subsets for each. So to remember it, there's an easy mnemonic called Ocean. So openness to experience is the first one. I'll elaborate in a bit, but first we'll say openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, 
and neuroticism. A point on that last one, it should really be emotional stability because all the other ones are the presence of something, a positive trait, whereas neuroticism is the lack of something. But it's easier for a spelling and mnemonic. So. And the Hexaco does a revision on that particular trait and calls it emotionality. Okay, I thought it was emotional stability, but that also works because they're basically the same thing. All right, so openness to experience. Like Wikipedia is actually pretty comprehensive on this. I think that gives you a great overview. You can also find some free tests online. But like I said, you can kind of assess yourself, ask your friends, am I more or less of this? And you have to probably define it for them than you, for instance. Like we can talk about you and I if you want while we do this. So openness to experience is a general appreciation for art, emotion, adventure, unusual ideas, imagination, curiosity, and variety of experience. And where do we both fall on this one? <laughs> We're both quite high and anybody listening to this podcast is probably also high. Would you say that I am higher or lower than you you're higher than like everyone not everyone i would i I don't know i haven't taken the test in a while but i'd probably be 80th percentile and up maybe yeah you're you're very high in openness to experience i'm probably quite high but yeah i don't think i'm at athlete levels like like you (laughs) oh yeah that's quite the compliment yeah so we talked about need for cognition and there would be some debate i haven't actually looked into this but it's probably been nested or absorbed into this trait it may not actually be a distinct concept it may just be openness to experience because people who are high on this are intellectually curious open to emotions sensitive to beauty and willing to try new things it goes into greater depth on openness but there are also some sample statements you could listen to and agree to but i will let you add anything you have to add for now no no all right so sample items would be i have a rich vocabulary i have a vivid imagination i have excellent ideas i am quick to understand things so if you answer yes to these things then you're high in openness correct yeah yeah these seem like they're positive the reversed ones the ones that if you say yes it actually lowers your score would be i have difficulty understanding abstract ideas i am not interested in abstract ideas and i do not have a good imagination Right. And so I guess in terms of this model, we're not saying that being high on this is necessarily good or bad. It just is, right? Yeah, I guess society kind of says that it's better to be higher on these things a lot of the time, which is why people argue that neuroticism should be flipped and made to be emotional stability or whatever, because the top end is what society tells us is better, though it's not necessarily true. Because for instance, the drawbacks could be that you could be more pulled into cults, maybe, or extremism. Because like, if you look at actual extremists, like like Al-Qaeda and stuff, people that join that, they actually are our demographic. They are middle-ish class white men who are well-educated and actually quite intelligent. So intelligence doesn't necessarily insulate you from these things, which is why I think that playing with Myers-Briggs is playing with fire because it's bringing you into an area where you may be led astray and your intelligence will not necessarily protect you because it can turn in on itself in that way. As well, I think being high in intelligence, this is not necessarily intelligence. I should say that each of these is broken down into two subcategories. So openness is broken down to intellect, and openness. (laughs) So how those are defined, I couldn't actually find those. It's actually hard to find the breakdown. It's all good. But intellect is the one and the other one is just like willingness to try new things, I guess. But intellect in general, high intellect correlates with depression. Right. So there's drawbacks. We're not saying like, yeah, high on all of this comes with no drawbacks. It's high intellect, well, higher depression. High openness to experience, well, maybe you'll want to experience a cult. (laughs) (laughs) Or like critical thinking, for instance, is not always a boon because when we find something we don't like, we use critical thinking and we find something we agree with we don't use it that's something to be very aware of yeah as well if you think about like a simple man for instance this could be anybody i guess but like back in the day like i'm a simple man like they have simple wants simple needs they know what they want they know who they are they're satisfied with what they have 
right? So there's nothing wrong with that at all. And some jobs just need mechanical, just need somebody there to be doing it. Not saying like mechanics, I just mean like physically just pulling a switch or putting things together. Simplicity, like uh, eat the same lunch every day, take care of your family, mow your lawn. You know, I value kind of that simplicity coming from a small town enjoying country music i guess <laughs> i think it's something that probably people with higher intellect have to train themselves to appreciate those things because like one of the things you and i have discussed is like addiction to ideas or addiction to mental stimulation and that is something that can be all-encompassing i guess or maybe you can continue to always be insatiable in that way and that's not a great way to be satisfied right insatiability is kind of the antithesis of contentedness yeah it's addiction it's more there's never enough and so being satisfied and simplicity there's a value there for sure yep and then openness i guess i've worried about taking psychedelics for instance i've kind of wanted to try them just to see because people always talk about how great they are but i've heard that they can move you to be a little bit more open and i'm like i'm open enough uh, you're good enough yeah good. i don't i don't really <laughs> think i want to risk getting any more open-minded because at some point you get so open-minded your brain just kind of falls out right. you know <laughs> I, I think it could very much help if someone is like highly neurotic and it could really open them up to a place where they're more fun See, that's another trade altogether, right? You're just skipping right to the end there. Neuroticism is what that, or emotional stability, is that what we're talking about there? People that would be highly neurotic or low emotional stability would probably be more benefited from taking these things. Yeah, so I remember this one book I had, it actually used like a hero and all-star for each of these. Openness to experience... I don't remember who they chose. I guess I'm defining neuroticism different than the big five. They're defining it more as emotional stability. I'm thinking of it in its classic terms of neurosis versus psychosis. Neurosis being very rigid and ordered versus psychosis being kind of disordered and, and chaotic. And so I guess I'm thinking about it that way. They're called like type A and type B or type 1 and type 2. Well, that's the different scale altogether. That's to do with mental health. But what is that? Do you remember what that scale is called? No. No. Okay, well, that's independent of this. Let's, let's not confuse it. All right, so for openness, the hero icon is Leonardo da Vinci. He's always exploring. He's always creative. He's always making new things. I think Einstein would probably be up there as well because he openly said that it wasn't his intelligence. It was his creativity that allowed him to get ahead. And this is also where I argue that we should not aspire to be necessarily geniuses or necessarily like just in one specific area. But if we are to take a number of different areas and learn enough in each of them, then we might be able to combine them together to make something interesting, something cross-disciplinary. That's where I think individuals today, you and I, listener, we can find gaps in our current understanding and explore them. And I think it takes all different types of people in the world for things to function. Oh, yeah. And so if we try to idealize a certain set of traits or being high on a certain set of traits, what we do is we kind of stigmatize people that are the opposite of that. And really, we need variation in personal traits between us. Like if we were all the same type of person, for example, if everyone was like me, nothing would get built. <laughs> if everyone was like you, maybe there would be too much chaos. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, that's, that's true. Yeah. I should also note openness is one of the only, I think it's the only trait that correlates with political leanings. So if you're high on openness, you're more likely to be left, progressive, open to changing things and fixing things for various groups. Whereas if you're low on openness, then you're going to be more conservative. And I don't want to insult conservatives, and I don't necessarily think he's a great authority, and especially in his more recent years, but Jordan Peterson made a point that I think makes sense, which was that if you're low in intelligence, then trusting in the good old tried and true, not trying to figure out how this really crazy, complicated world on your own, that and listening to it authority, that makes more sense. Not to say that you have to be that to be conservative, but if you are lower in intelligence and confused by how things are going, you're more likely to be conservative because it's the tried and true and tested. Yeah. And I guess when we point to the value of 
conservatism. If we go to the extreme left, for example, the critique would be it's too much change too fast, too much chaos. Breaking things by accident. And the value of a conservative balance would be that it slows things so that change can happen. In a, you took one to extreme and not the other one. The other one is complete stagnation and consolidation of power and subjugation of everyone. I was getting there. Okay. I was getting there. Yeah. You didn't trust I was going to do it, huh? No. So yeah, the value of the right in that balance would be it slows things so that you don't have like the French Revolution, apparently. That was Edmund Burke's critique against what was happening in terms of social change, the English as well. I mean, all through Europe, there were just giant. Of course, they were worried about the French monarchy. Revolution because they were worried that they, the aristocracy, would be the ones with their heads in the chopping block. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So they wanted to preserve themselves. Which is how they invented capitalism, Yay. which they saw as a new way of being a feudal order. Some of them actually applauded that. <laughs> and so to your point before, yes, the critique of the right would be too much stagnation and absence of change. And the benefit of the left in that would be pushing for change and flexibility. Yes. And so that relates to openness. And that's how we extrapolated it to kind of politics. Right. Yeah. I'll also recap all these at the end because it's got some interesting ones in this book. This book, if you're interested, it's called Snoop. It's about a guy who used the Big Five to see what you could determine by looking at people and looking at their living spaces. It's a really interesting book. I mean, it's it's got the same issues of all psych research from this era, which is that it's mostly focused on undergrads. But they had undergrads go into dormitories and even with the people knowing they were coming and had them assess what they thought the traits of the occupant were without even seeing the occupant. And it's really interesting. It goes in depth on that. I don't have the book with me. I have a kind of PDF that does a summary, but it's interesting to see what you can tell. So anyway, moving on. Next one is conscientiousness. Steve, do you want to help us define that or do you want me to go ahead? My understanding of that is it's kind of your attention to detail, how kind of structured you are in terms of doing things the right way versus kind of being messy. It kind of sounds a little bit like openness versus not, but it's different. Can you define the difference there? Openness is whether you are interested in new ideas and trying new things or not and how intelligent you are, broadly speaking. And conscientiousness is more about showing up prepared, showing up on time, being orderly, being industrious. Because like that one actually does break down into two. Like I said, for all of them, they do. This one breaks down into industriousness and orderliness. So I would classify myself as high in industriousness, but I've had to fight to be more orderly. I'm more messy by nature. And over time, I've trained myself to be more orderly. But industriousness means like if you take somebody who's high on industriousness and you stick them in the woods, they'll just be chopping wood all day. They'll be preparing everything. They'll be constantly doing work and finding things to do that would be useful not just lazing about versus someone who's low on conscientiousness and particularly industriousness. They'll just be kind of relaxing. Yeah. They'll relax. They'll be more happy just kind of doing nothing, just chilling and socializing. I find that I can have like a vacation for maybe a month and then I go nuts. I just can't stand doing nothing. Even that probably two weeks of doing absolutely nothing, no work at all. I will be like, ah, like I gotta, I gotta start doing something. How about you? Well, for me, I kind of am always doing something. It may not look like it, I would say you're high in industriousness as well. I think fairly high in orderliness. I don't really know, though, because most of your spaces have always been shared, so I don't know what you would be like on your own. Yeah, I guess I'm similar to you in terms of orderliness could be more of a problem, but industriousness is quite high. And I define it loosely because I'm not out there chopping wood, but I'm constantly thinking about ideas and forming those ideas into coherent thoughts that I can share with people in different capacities, whether it's in my counseling work or my writing. It's really a form of work and industry and thinking and, and producing that doesn't look like 
traditional work. Oh, this is why you were confusing it with openness of experience because you're thinking about the work of thinking, right? I guess in that way they would overlap. I guess, I mean, they all interact. That's the thing. Because if you're high in openness, then you might be thinking more and that would be a form of work. Whereas perhaps if you're lower on openness, maybe the form of work you'd be doing would be purely physical. You'd be making stuff and tinkering. Exactly. Yeah. But from my understanding, conscientiousness is the only trait associated with success, success defined as like kind of capitalistic success. I think it's a combination of intellect, the subset of openness, and conscientiousness is both subsets, both okay. sub-characteristics. Yep. Yeah, because you have to follow through. You have to actually do stuff, right? Like coming up with ideas is not enough. The stereotype of being high on openness and low on conscientiousness would be like you're going from idea to idea, not finishing anything, constantly fascinated yeah, by schemes, like, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, just like, oh, the new thing. And then you want to try different things, but you can't follow through and it's so chaotic and, and disorderly. Yeah, so it's the trait of being self-disciplined and acting dutifully, striving for achievement against measurements or outside expectations. So like you might enjoy being measured, you might enjoy getting a high score, like all of us do, but like some people really desire feedback, right? They want to know, did I do well? And I I mean, I like that to some degree, depending on wh- whether it's important or not. It's also related to impulse control, general regulation, especially probably emotions, impulse control and direction. So like, I guess you could be extremely emotionally volatile, but able to hold back your emotions, which I'm coming out of a period of emotional and ability and difficulty. So I've had to use my conscientiousness to keep myself in line and be like, don't do that. That's just an emotional impulse. Don't say that. Don't think that because not that they're necessarily bad, but more we all have like lighter and darker sides to ourselves. We can give into our lower self and get envious or jealous. And you can catch yourself and say, no, I don't want to be that person. I'm not going to do that. And I think that's where conscientiousness comes in. Yeah. Helps with emotional regulation. Yeah. Shall we move on? Actually, I'll give some sample items because I'll do that for okay, every one of these. So the positive ones, as in saying yes, means you're more conscientious. Would be I am always prepared. I pay attention to details. I get chores done right away. I follow a schedule. And then the reverse ones would be I don't like order. I leave my belongings around. I make a mess of things. I shirk my duties. So actually, I should point out that like knowing that this correlates highly with success. When I read that book, I actually made a concerted effort to work on this. I made sure that I made my bed when I got up in the morning. I made sure that I I would put away my clothes. I would fold my clothes. And it's small things. They don't seem like a big deal. But these are the things that help you to get more in order and in line because a chaotic environment does actually have some research supporting that it makes you less productive and increases the chaos you have and more emotional problems. So Jordan Peterson was right. Clean your room. I was avoiding going there. But yes, <laughs> that is one of the few things he said. But it's it's banal, right? It's kind of like a basic thing, but it's founded in some research. Yeah, yeah there is something to that. I don't want to give him too much credit on all this. No, of course, there's a lot of problems with things he says recently. <laughs> yeah, of course, recently and back then. Because the thing is, he mixes in research with his own just That's conjecture. Yeah. Yes. And he doesn't build any fences around them. He's through a bone there. Because, I mean, he is like the kind of big five advocate as well. Like, he's really into this. He has his own kind of website you can go to to do this he's an advocate for so why not yeah i mean as i think most psych people would be because they would be the other ones are just not credible at all i should also (laughs) note that conscientiousness rises among young adults and then declines in older adults so it's possible that my efforts were in vain like i would have just had that happen anyway but it's still worth the try just to teach yourself and get in good habits so the icon for this one do you want to think of who it might be i don't know it's robocop (laughs) i would have never guessed that no well i didn't mean you had to guess when you could have just come up with any of them but yeah, it's RoboCop. Hmm. So yeah, actually, this book is like where you might find these people, people who are high scorers on these things. So for openness, where you'll find them is browsing the philosophy section of a bookstore. For conscientiousness, you might find them in the aisle of Office Depot where they sell color-coordinated filing supplies. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so like accountants oh. are going to be very high on conscientiousness. Oh. Yeah, it's more structured and orderly and predictable, you know. Again, we need all different types of people in the world. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I think 
Like, again, it's, it's desirable to show up on time and be prepared. And because people who are low on this, artists and stuff, this is why I find artists can be very difficult to work with and why they have a reputation of that, is that they're very open-minded, but they're low conscientiousness. So they may not show up on time. They may not deliver their stuff on schedule. So if you can find an artist or a creative who is able to do this, hold on to them. Yeah, an artist who's high in conscientiousness, that would be a really nice pairing. The guy I work with from Brazil, Leonardo, the writer that's helped me with my D&D endeavors, he's very much that. He's great. Nice. Perfect. All right. Moving on. Next is extroversion. So this one is... I think defined a little bit differently. There's two ways to define this in psych. One is about energy and the other one is whether you seek sociality. And I think this one's more about energy. So it's you get energy from socializing if you're high on this and you lose energy from being alone. Whereas people who are low on this get energy from being alone and lose energy by socializing. Yes. I feel like I'm kind of in the middle. Most people, like again, remember it's the standard distribution. Most people... Most people are going to be kind of in the middle. Yeah. I think, how does the standard deviation work again? I forget. It's like 90% will be within two standard deviations. Yeah. But I guess if I, if I were to have to pick I would, I would go with more introversion slightly because i get energy from being alone most of us are going to be ambiverts as opposed to like ambidextrous but meaning both so just to close that loop i'm just i just looked it up for standard deviations a standard deviation in either direction is two standard deviations covers 97.7 percent of people so chances are you're going to be between 30 and 70 percentile very few people are going to be from 0 to 20 or from 80 to 100 so i guess maybe my estimate of me being 80 percentile for openness might be wrong but like i said most people are going to land in the middle there. I think you are probably on the low half and I am probably above half. Exactly. Kind of near the middle, but I'm slightly below you, slightly above. And what are the, I guess, the traits associated with each? You said there's a list of questions you have. Well, we'll get to the sample items in a second. The extroversion is characterized by breadth of activities as opposed to depth. Okay. So having a wider variety as opposed to going deep. I've been told I go wide and deep, so so I don't know what that means. Surgency, surgency, what is that? trait of emotional reactivity in which a person tends toward high level of positive affect. Oh, so you tend to be more cheerful. Weird. That's odd. Cheerful. Okay. So cheerfulness from external activities slash situations. So it makes you happy to be around people. Energy creation from external means. So like, like I said, you get energy from interacting with people. You tend to seek engagement with the external world. You enjoy interacting with people and are often perceived as energetic, you tend to be enthusiastic and action oriented. So I guess one, introverts would be the opposite of all those things. They tend to be quiet, low key, deliberate, and less involved in the social world. Shyness it should not be interpreted as shy or depression. No, exactly. I do not like how introversion is stigmatized as shyness or depression. Why are you so shy? Why are you so quiet? Oh. I'm just listening, you know? I'm, I'm having a good time listening. <laughs> not me. That's that's. I'm the opposite, but I understand where Yeah, shyness <laughs> comes from. from anxiety. Introversion is just a personality trait that's neutral. Yeah, you enjoy observing. You enjoy being a little quieter, which is fine. But as they finish that, it's not shyness or depression. It's actually greater independence of their social world than extroverts. They don't need as much stimulation and they need more time alone. Again, don't confuse that with unfriendliness or antisocialness. No. But they can be aloof and reserved in social situations. That doesn't mean anything negative about your judgments or whatever. No. So you ask for sample items, I can give you sample items. Please do. All right. So sample items for extroversion. Saying yes means higher. I am the life of the party. I feel comfortable around people. I start conversations. I do not mind being the center of attention. And then reverse. I don't talk a lot. I keep in the background. I do not like to draw attention to myself. I am quiet around strangers. Okay. The prototypical person for that is someone I don't know. His name is Axel Foley from Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> what? Why did they pick some random person that's not very popular? Beverly Hills Cop, I think, was a big show maybe in the 90s. I've never even heard of that show. Yeah, but you 
your experience is not the universal experience, Steve. The author clearly thinks that this is a, a famous character. And like Robocop, like he's picking dated characters. Like the next one for agreeableness, the person is Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Again, oh. these are people that were popular back in the day. So clearly this person is older. Yeah, clearly. Can you think of a better, more popular representation of extroversion? Probably a comedian or no, maybe not. Comedians actually tend to be introverted when they're off stage. Probably salespeople. Our friend Karen, <laughs> she's not famous, so that doesn't no, help. Not. Oh yeah, that does not help at all. More famous, and you pick. Our oh, okay, maybe um, Russell Brand. <laughs> oh yeah, Russell Brand. Yeah, even though he's a bit of a kook a bunch of the time now, but he's super high in openness, probably too much. I would say, yeah, maybe low in conscientiousness and very high in extroversion. Yes, yeah, we can say that about him. See, like this is the kind of thing you could do. It doesn't mean that much, but it's like, oh, interesting. Like you, you can see these things in everyone. Yeah, you can see these things in people. Yeah, where you would find this person is at the center of the party, as opposed to the periphery. Yes, as opposed to being a wallflower <laughs> so next up is agreeableness so this one i've heard peterson again this is from him but i'll get to that in a second first let's define what it is do you want to take a little little gamble at that pretty much if you're high in agreeableness you don't like to make waves or engage in conflict it's pretty much that generally speaking that's my definition as well i think they go astray so first let's define agreeableness we can say disagreeableness is just being low on this trait so agreeableness is a general concern for social harmony getting along with others considerate kind generous trusting and trustworthy helpful and willing to compromise their interests with others so if you say hey i understand you asked for this but like i can't do that can you do this and they just say no they're probably low on agreeableness yeah so the problem with low agreeableness is you can be confrontational and the problem with high agreeableness is you don't know how to say no and you you're like burned out you self-sacrifice yeah. too much so agreeableness sounds good and generally is for social cohesion getting along but the thing is you might not stand up to authority you might not fight for the downtrodden you might be walked all over and to the extreme you might not even know what you want yes exactly and, and that's kind of at the highest level you can become kind of like codependence and you sacrifice all of your personal needs for whatever you're called to do because you can't say no. Yeah. You lose yourself. And so that's that's a problem with, with high agreeableness. Yeah. So this one is it's kind of tricky though because like the point I was alluding to with Peterson was he suggests that this is kind of like being a mother hen like you want to protect everyone that's in your in-group but this is where I think it might be his conjecture because I've never come across this anywhere but him. So take this with a heap of salt because he goes off the rails sometimes. Or a grain of salt. No, a heap. <laughs> okay. He says that it's also anybody outside your social circle is a snake that needs to be trampled and destroyed that doesn't sound like somebody that's high agreeableness to me so i don't feel like no. that's exactly that's why i think it's so strange you would define it that way yeah he's like oh you're very agreeable to people on the in group but anybody outside no but that's not true like of the people that i know that are high in agreeableness they are like that with everybody everybody yeah yeah so I think he's wrong on that. I've never seen selective agreeableness like that. No, I think he's wrong. Because <laughs> he says that about like social justice people, which has become like a slur, but people that fight for the rights of everybody is what that word translates to. Saying that they're high agreeable for in-group? Yes, they're high agreeable. Their empathy is what leads them to that position. But then they're like really caustic and mean to outsiders. I don't think that's true. I think that both groups, both high and low agreeableness people are in movements. And the low agreeableness ones are the ones that are most visible because they're the ones making waves. Exactly. Yeah, I think he twisted the narrative on that one wow of course he's he's flattened a lot of the nuance in his opponents a lot of the time i mean i could be accused of that with conservatives i try to understand where they're coming from i just simply don't agree <laughs> right so disagreeable people it does also point out and this is where i think i don't like this taxonomy this categorization is that disagreeable people place self-interest above get along with others i think that's wrong i would argue that it's you don't place harmony above sorting out problems that's where i would put it because hexaco tries to do this hexaco is a competing model with this it's the exact same but they change some 
the words slightly to spell the word hexaco and they added in humility as a trait that's what the h is yeah exactly there's a few other things i've tried to say but it's like a morality clause to it which i don't think is necessary but this also is correct that the big five doesn't address morality but i think for me low agreeableness can still be a good thing it's actually very useful if you're able to get in people's faces that need it like oppressive people that are the boot that's stepping on everybody you need to get in those people's faces and do something about it you can fight for people that are not yourself you can use this selectively yeah so you can be low in agreeableness high in what the hexaco would call humility and then you are kind of advocating for the underdog and so you're not necessarily acting in self-interest you know yeah but i wonder what that would be like the feeling for others hold on the feeling for others is agreeableness so i guess by definition i'm wrong so ignore what i say i think it should be different but it's not by this definition feeling others emotions empathy in that way would be this but we can look at the subcategories oh here we go perfect the subcategories make it clear so compassion is the one and the other one is politeness so if you're high compassion low politeness that would be ideal you will feel for other people and you'll fight for their cause when they are being beaten down yes and you aren't just self-interested yes perfect yeah so one's agreeableness positively correlates to the quality of relationships with one's team as a leader it also positively predicts transformational leadership skills so do you know are you familiar with transformational leadership no neither am i i've explored it a little bit but it's been like a decade it's where a leader works with teams or followers beyond their immediate self-interests to identify a need to change create a vision to guide the change through influence inspiration and executing the change in tandem with commitment of members so basically it's helping people develop as well as more than just the immediate goals in front of you right although actually agreeableness is found to be negatively related to transactional leadership in the military as it would be yeah yeah i guess that makes sense because like the military is authoritarian in authoritarian systems this is me kind of thinking on the fly in authoritarian systems it seems like high agreeableness will be a drawback so corporate military where i tell you what to do and you friggin' do it or else that's where disagreeableness is useful but if we're talking a more anarchistic democratic working with people as equals model where we're actually being good to the people involved and not disrespecting them i think being high agreeableness is more useful where you're willing to talk to them and work through things together yeah makes sense so sample items so these are the ones where you say yes you're higher on agreeableness i am interested in people i sympathize with others feelings i have a soft heart I feel others' emotions. I make people feel at ease. Then the reverse, I insult people. I am not really interested in others. I feel a little concerned for others. I am not interested in other people's problems. Yeah, I'm pretty high on agreeableness. Yes, I would say very much. I am less agreeable than you. That's pretty yeah, clear. Yes, that's clearly established, yeah. And so Mr. Rogers. Yeah, he's the prototype. He's the archetype or prototype of this category. He's the best. Oh, Mr. Rogers is amazing. PBS. See, the government can do things well. Of course. That era of PBS was amazing. They had oh, him, yeah. Bob Ross. Oh, Bob Ross. I think yeah. Sesame Street came from that. Mr. Rogers actually, you should look this up. I'll, I'll link it. But Mr. Rogers successfully petitioned the Senate, Senate or Congress, one or the other, to maintain the funding for PBS. He went up there and he gave a speech and actually successfully convinced legislators to do something, like to, to continue giving them money. If anyone should be a saint, it should be him. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like nothing's ever come out bad about him. I would be mortified if something finally did. I know. I'm just waiting. I'm like, I, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping not because like, <laughs> Yeah. This dark thing comes out. Like, so far, so good, apparently. Yeah, he's one of the few. And I think a modern day one, which is a fictional character, would be probably Ted Lasso, I would say. That's a great show for what's called tonic masculinity, the reverse of toxic. Tonic that cures and, and heals. Masculinity that cures and heals. Yeah, like it's not all bad. I think I'm, I'm happy with that being more popularized on the left because the right hears toxic masculinity and thinks, oh, masculinity, bad. And no, no, no. There no, are no, positive no, no, no. forms. The left's critique is that certain forms of masculinity are toxic. Yes. Which is pretty... <laughs> 
That's true. Exactly. Not all masculinity, just certain forms of it. And like most things, if you get too much of it, the dose makes the poison. or And the type of it. Well... Because you can have a high dose of tonic masculinity. Well, no, the thing is, it's like Buddhism, the middle way. Like, you have to be balanced, right? You can't just be completely selfless forever because then you again like we said you, you won't even yourself. know what you want yeah so you, to be a whole individual and to be good in these things you have to be more balanced so for instance i wouldn't say like talks about masculinity just <laughs> i heard a, a great video on this recently was walter white from breaking bad he's taking the aspect of being a provider so far that he's willing to do absolutely abhorrent things that would be an example of toxic masculinity oh you want to know my archetype for disagreeableness sure slash toxic masculinity andrew tate yeah, he probably would be. He's very toxic. Like the representation of disagreeableness. Or, I mean, anybody that's... Donald Trump. Donald, Donald Trump, Trump. Highly disagreeable. Yeah. Highly disagreeable. In which case, I would agree that it's self-interest above all else. Because these guys, like Tate was basically running like a sex, what was called a sex trafficking ring. And Trump has done tons, countless terrible things. Or, I don't know, Kevin Leary or Simon Powell. Simon Cowell, yeah. Cowell, that's well, it. So we're not necessarily saying it has to be, you know, bad. Because that would be in the hexical model, the, the humility aspect of good and bad, like the morality aspect of it. But these are generally people who are just famous for being confrontational, straight yeah. shooter types. We're talking know? about their on-screen personas as well. Like, I don't know what they're like off. But I guess you could argue that it's morally compromising to and do I've that. heard things that people have, have interacted with Trump personally and he's like the most agreeable person at times i think he's he's a freaking like narcissist slash psychopath of course he can turn he'll on charm use it and you'll come off so charming and so smooth and then you'll turn <laughs> and if you, he thinks he can get something from you of course he's going to be good exactly yeah. exactly can't trust it no i think these people are not stupid they're not going to just be like you have power over me so i'm just going to get in your face but that's probably more related to intelligence about whether you should or should not use your disagreeableness and then your conscientiousness can you stop yourself this is what i'm talking about like it's meta it's it's odds right so if you're high on intelligence low on conscientiousness and low on agreeableness you might mouth off to your boss when it's really an opportune time you might punch your landlord when you shouldn't do that even though you know it's the wrong thing to do that's how these things kind of interact it increases the odds like me and you being high on openness to experience doesn't mean we're interested in literally everything it just means that we're much more likely to be curious yeah it's, it's all statistical probabilities and that's what i like about these actual scientific personality models versus as we were talking about before <laughs> you fit into a box yeah you are this this is you all the time no matter what the situation yeah, is because it doesn't leave room for these are all probabilities yeah like if you're kind of in the middle it's like you're you have an average probability of things happening versus more of a probability of things so yeah and i had a point and i forgot it <laughs> conscientiousness was something was something related to that but let's uh, whatever and maybe it'll come back to me so the final one is neuroticism which we're going to stick with neuroticism even though it's a very charged term that was deeply rooted in misogyny but i think it's probably gonna be more confusing than not if i have to flip everything or keep having to say this is also emotional stability if you reverse it so let's just stick with neuroticism being 100 on neuroticism means you're almost no emotional stability you're going to be all over the place emotionally things can trigger you and set you off very easily so here it's the tendency to have strong negative emotions such as anger anxiety depression it is sometimes called emotional stability or is reversed refer as emotional stability blah blah, blah. is associated with low tolerance for stress and strongly dislike change it's been a temperament that's studied for a long time they're very emotionally reactive and vulnerable to stress they're more likely to interpret ordinary situations as threatening and 
minor frustrations can come off as hopelessly difficult. They tend to be shallow in the way that they express their emotions also. Like, I just feel bad, not like I'm feeling anxious about this because blah. So this is like the granularity we talked about in one Most episode a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Any other points you want to think? It's pessimism towards work. You feel your feelings strongly. You wear your heart on your sleeve. Yeah. Well, that's not, again, if you're highly conscientious, you might be able to, oh, that's what I was going to say. Consciousness is about situations, right? Like this, this is why I don't like Myers Briggs as well, is that it's about like, you're like this all the time. Like this is you in every situation, whereas conscientiousness is defined as being prepared for the situation as it's called for. You don't show up in a suit to a dig site when you're going to be working in manual labor. You show up in, in like the clothing that's appropriate for the situation. So it's about how you're going to react to situations as they come. It's not that you're a one trick pony. Okay. So the thing here is neuroticism is connected to pessimism towards work, towards certainty that work hinders personal relationships and to higher levels of anxiety from the pressures at work. So generally you hate work. You don't think work is a good thing and you're going to be like, I got to work. Reading this though, I feel like I'm definitely more neurotic than you. Definitely. I'm very low in neuroticism. Yeah. Especially this period I'm just coming out of like lots of anger and depression and dealing with bad feelings. But like my, like I said, my conscientiousness has helped me hold my tongue and just bear through it. But I think when it comes to work, I don't feel that way. Like I feel a lot of the time, like working here, it's been a lot of work fixing this apartment up. But to me, it's just like, well, I'm doing this now is what I basically is what I have in my head. Like, oh, I guess I'm doing this work right now. And it's just whether I feel like I have enough of my other needs met at that point. Yeah. What about you? I don't know. I think it depends on the job. Like uh, these, these things are so contextual that if you have a great job, then maybe you don't feel that way. Like it, it's all context. Yeah. So. This one I feel like is going to be more susceptible to situation. Cause I was in a really suboptimal situation and things just all kind of fell apart for a while. Yeah. So I wouldn't want to confuse personality in like situational stress because personality is kind of meant to look at innate characteristics that are generally stable from birth for an individual. Yeah. And that's kind of what personality theory is all about. It's not supposed to change a whole lot some models allow for it to well, change more than i think this others. one does like i said for i think it was conscientiousness it does change with lifetime it's low in young adulthood and low and older like in elderliness so they, they do seem to change over your lifespan whether that's to do with life circumstances it's hard to say i think neuroticism though it's it's the tendency right like if you were put in like as bad a situation as i was just in it's hard to know how you would react because i don't think i've ever seen you in that whereas i think given how bad things were i think i handled it really well because right. like i didn't lash out at people i didn't melts down any relationships i didn't like destroy anything i just yeah a little well maybe you're not as neurotic as you think maybe you just dealt a bad hand because you're so open to experience that you didn't have a lot of stability historically I mean, yeah, that definitely plays a factor into it, but I don't know if I would go that far because situations have not been great. Like my opportunities have been sparse in a lot of points in my life. And like I said, I think maybe earlier in the podcast, I may have said that I don't really have regrets because I did the best I could at the moment that I was doing it. The only thing that maybe being lower on openness might have done was push me towards a more conservative, more profitable area of study. But like both of us chose similar areas. We both went to social sciences. Yes. I'm not moralizing. No, I know. Any I, of this. I'm just saying whether I agree with it on its face or not. Okay. But I definitely do tend toward more anxiety and and depression, I'm just able to hold it and analyze it and inspect it more, which is where metacognition comes in, right? Yeah. Which I think, again, anybody, if you have a sunny disposition all the time, you're in poverty, you just got yelled at, you just got fired, and you're still like, well, I mean, something else will come along, then you're probably low on neuroticism. I'm kind of like that, probably. Yeah. Whereas I will be thrown into emotional turmoil when those things happen, probably. I will have to calm myself down and center myself again. I won't lash out at people because I think my conscientiousness helps that. And I'm only, this very it seems very self-indulgent. I'm just giving examples of how these things work. So you will just like kind of let it bounce off of you. I wish I could be like that. It's something I've aspired to, but it's it's difficult. <laughs> yeah. Can we have some 
sample our items? Yes, we can. So the positive ones, aka, this is where it gets confusing. If you say yes, then you're more neurotic, which means you're more likely to be emotional. So I get stressed out easily. I worry about things. I am easily disturbed. I get upset easily. I change my mood a lot. I have frequent mood swings. I get irritable easily. I often feel blue. And then the other ones reversed would be, I am relaxed most of the time. I seldom feel blue. There's only two. Yeah. So I don't get stressed out easily, I would say. We don't need to go through this stuff for, for me. I've already, I no, feel like no, I've been self We don't, we don't need enough. to psychoanalyze you anymore. Yeah. We've already done that in like episode 12, I think it was, where we, the transitional stress. episode, where <laughs> yeah. we literally just did that. Yeah. Okay. So skipping that, I feel like I don't want to be too about me. Woody Allen is the avatar for oh, this. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. So anxious, easily ruffled and upset, worried, moody. Where you find this person? Awake, tossing and turning in bed the night before an important meeting. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm probably above the 50%, but I don't think I'm on the extremes. No, I don't think so either. And I think you're probably low. We're probably like at the 30 to 40 percentiles. I would put you pretty low. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So what they might do, think again and again and again what his friend really meant by that remark. Okay, I can fix it. I think sometimes like that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I could too, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, those are the big five. That's what we're dealing with. I think we're, we're nearing the hour mark, so we're actually hitting this quite good. Yeah. Any remarks you want to say, or I can throw out the overview of the facets? Yeah, I guess the remarks would be that personal personality theory is highly individualistic and that they're generally stable over your life, and it pretty much just predicts the probability of how you're going to react in situations not determines how you're going to react in situations. Yeah. And there's so many layers to this because I would never want, I guess, if somebody suffered a trauma for that to be kind of confused with their personality. The thing is, I think traumatic events are one of the few things I can shift personality permanently. And same with psychedelic experiences, which is what I alluded to. At least I've heard. Again, that I think, trace that back. I think that actually might be a Peterson statement as well. So I might want to double check that one. Yeah. Generally, it's considered stable, but yes, things can change that. We didn't even talk about personality disorders. And whether they're a thing or not. Whether that's real or... Then again, I already referenced psychopathy and narcissism, which are both personality disorders. And so we didn't even talk about, yes, the dark triad is another set of personality traits. We talked about the hexaco model and the H part of like humility. They say that it's a useful addition to the big five because if you score low on pro-sociality or that humility aspect of hexaco, then it's an indicator that maybe we should try a dark triad personality test on that person to see if they're scoring high on the three factors of the dark triad being psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. And so those are personality traits that are considered very dangerous. And if you score low on the hexco humility aspect, then you might score high on dark triad, just separate from big five. Pretty much we're trying to make sense of people and there's different models to do that. And there's better and there's worse ways of doing it. And there's certain cues that can tell you things. Like I think being into sports meant you were more close to experience in the rooms. Of, if I remember having jazz or world religions or maps would make you more high on openness to experience. And the thing is, people are like, if people know they're coming to check it out, this is from that book, Snoop again. If people know that you're coming to look at their place, then won't they tidy up? There's a big difference for someone that's high on conscientiousness and someone that's low. Someone that's high will have things like color-coded, labeled, in structured order, and, and it makes all sense. Whereas somebody that is low will just like kick their clothing under the bed and try to hide it. Like it's still pretty 
obvious between the two. Also, I would point out that for Hexaco, humility is also broken down to honesty dash humility. It's a hyphenated one, which breaks down to sincerity, fairness, greed avoidance, and modesty. So it's interesting. I don't know why it hasn't been quite added in. It's been talked about for a while, but for some reason, the big five is still the dominant one. Also, I realized that another correlation that I didn't mention, and this, you could argue, is entirely socialization. This may not have anything to do inherently with them genetically, but women in general, the only difference between men and women, according to the big five factor, is that women consistently, relatively speaking, on average, again, big numbers, I'm curving this a lot, is that women tend to be higher on agreeableness and higher on neuroticism. I think, though, that may be misogyny and just looking for certain things as well. I think being physically smaller, physically weaker, and having like physically larger people constantly wanting to take something from you or get something from you. These are adaptive traits. Yes. Being highly agreeable and not getting in their face, not instigating a fight would be smart as well. Sensitivity to threat detection. like Yeah. And like, like being more neurotic might make you be more averse to possible threats where you might be killed. So right. You're going to be sensitive to the, you're going to feel threats more. Yeah. So I think even if we're not talking biology, just socialization and interacting in the world that we live in, those make sense. They're adaptive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're not trying to say, again, the set, one set of this is bad or good. It's just different. And so even if we were to take the neuroticism slash emotionality factor, can we see some benefits in that? You pointed to one. High neuroticism? Yeah. If we don't frame it as neuroticism and do it in the more favorable emotional stability, what are some benefits of feeling you're feeling strongly? I think high neuroticism might drive you more towards creativity, to more personal expression, to more empathy, towards being able to understand the suffering of others, because that's what I've taken away from my personal suffering. I don't know. That was one of the one that's it's kind of a bit harder. I guess it would make you more empathic, probably. You're like a sensitive, emotional sensitive person. There's benefits in that. Some of the sweetest people can be that. Yeah. Highly neurotic, but also highly agreeable would be like, I guess that's, that's, that's women. That's the stereotype that I just painted of women. But yeah. It's one of the harder ones, but yeah, I think being more feeling and more aware of your emotions. Cause like if you're constantly cheerful and like everything is great, then you might not be a very good counseling necessarily. You, I think are, you take a different approach, but I think for the average person who has no training, you might just be like, what are you worried? What are you getting stressed out about? Just like relax. And that's like not useful. Validating. Yeah, exactly. Like your feelings don't matter. You're just like, why are you being such a little wimp about it? In addition, women, I think, are also encouraged to be more agreeable because being disagreeable is actually worse. Like being disagreeable for a man in a, say, a corporate context can get you more. It can actually make you more likely to get a higher salary, more likely to get ahead. Whereas if you're disagreeable to a woman in the exact same way, you may be penalized, seen as a troublemaker, seen as somebody that needs to be dealt with. So it actually is doubly negative for women in that context. Which is an unfortunate, yeah, male bias, yeah. Yeah. And this is going gender binary, which I would love to see the research on trans people and how those things change with transition and hormone therapy, but I haven't seen it yet. So that's a summary. If you want to make uh, compelling characters, like if you're writing fiction, then this would be useful to just briefly profile who this person is and how they'd interact with stuff. It's fun to just ha- like talk about this with your friends. If you want to understand yourself better than Myers-Briggs. Yeah. Also. <laughs> that too. And also maybe knowing how to appeal to your boss because you could see that they're highly neurotic. So like maybe giving them something that would be useful. Oh yeah. And signs of neuroticism in an environment would be motivational posters, emotional things that are to comfort them, like pictures of the family, for instance. Things like these are more likely, I think. Maybe not the pictures of the family, but calming scenes, white noise, sounds of the beach, things like these, like things that help with emotional regulation. Those things are things that are usually people higher in neuroticism will have. I didn't realize motivational posters are associated with neuroticism. Yep, at least according to that book. Okay. 
Interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think yeah we got all the characters. We got all those things. So that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. Hope to see you next time. We're going to try to get back to a more regular posting schedule, but it's been a time. So it's been a slice. Yeah. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. We don't have any silly quips. I think this is a silly quip.